Imagine for a moment that you heard from God. You clearly heard from Him. No mistaking it. He was speaking to you. And He said to you, ask me anything that you want to ask me to do for your nation and I will do it. What would you say to the Lord? What would you ask Him for? Now again, one thing. He didn't, I didn't say ask for ten, or five, or three, or two. You can only ask Him of one thing to do for our nation. And let's suppose the Lord said to you, I will do it. Perhaps you're thinking, Lord, please do something about the economy. That's the way most of us think, isn't it? Lord, help us out with the economy. We may say something about, God, would you protect our country from the terrorists? I think that would be a pretty legitimate prayer to pray, that we would have protection. Perhaps we would say, Lord, would you do something about our government? That would definitely be a worthy prayer to pray. But the reality is, if you're going to pray and ask God to do something in our country, the, biggest, the thing that would make the biggest difference for this country is the one thing that the psalmist prayed for in Psalm 85. Make your way there. And this is ultimately what he prayed. God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That's the number one prayer that you ought to pray for this country, not only for this country, but your church. God, would you revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Not only your church, but individually. This ought to be the prayer that you pray often in your own life. God, would you revive me that I might rejoice in you? Psalm 85, let's listen to the reading. Uh, the psalmist is indicating there was a time when God was favorable to the land because the people were walking in his ways. But when you pick up a little later in Psalm 85, it's obvious that the psalmist again is asking God to turn away his anger from them. That he would restore and revive them again. And then 4 through 7 gives, enumerates this awesome situation over the land when there's love and there's truth and there's righteousness. And uh, the, the ground is yielding its produce. And well, th those things sound wonderful, don't they? But they're a result of repentance and turning to the Lord. And so Psalm 85. And the question I would say to you is, obviously if God uh, led you to have this one question answered for him positively, that you want your church or your nation to be revived or you individually, the question we have to ask is, can God revive a nation? We have to pause and ask that question. Can he? So tonight's title is A God Who will revive a nation. Psalm 85, listen to the word of the Lord. If you want to stretch, you can stand. If not, that's okay. Just focus on the word. Psalm 85, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. We know Selah is a kind of a prelude musically. What do you think of this? It's a reminder in Hebrew of to pause long enough to think about how God was favorable, that the fortunes changed, that God forgave, that He covered their iniquity. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. 
and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us, rest, grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace, that's the word shalom, to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. Father, you have the power uh, to heal our land, to forgive our sins, Lord, to restore us. God, you know, and we know as your people, what is required of us, and that's repentance. To turn back to you. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be encouraged by your word tonight. And Father, I pray that we would take the necessary steps as your people to see you revive this church, our individual lives, and even perhaps our nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a prayer of restoration. And it seems obvious that in a point in time when you read the first few verses that God had poured out a blessing upon the land. He'd forgiven the nation of Israel for something. And scholars are divided about what that actually was. But it's probably the response of great gratitude that first ensued when they returned to the land. And all was well. They were feeling good. God had forgiven them and they were restored to the land. But you know how it is. When the first of the excellent beginnings began to break down and the forward motion to rebuild the city and the nation kind of ceased, we know that there was discouragement and disgrace that actually set in upon the people. And according to the opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah, what do we have going on? The people are in great trouble and they're in great distress. So what should the people of God, what should we do in those circumstances? We would have to say... If you're looking through the eyes of a, of a believing Christian, that we're not living in the best of circumstances. But that's okay. It's in the darkest times that the light of the gospel shines so brightly. It's fine that we're in difficult circumstances. And we should be asking our God to restore us. At first, he speaks of a time when they seemed to be devoted. They had turned back to God. And... Now, it seems that, well then, God forgave them. But when you get down to verse 4, he starts again to start speaking of the need for restoration and for the need for forgiveness. So it seems obvious that the nation is once again slipping away from the Lord. Now, how can God really revive a nation like ours? How can God really revive a church like ours? And some of you may think, well, we're in revival. Well... That may be possible for you individually. It may be possible collectively for some in the church. But I kind of doubt we're really in the mode corporately of a full revival in that sense. Because there would probably be a whole lot more brokenness. You know, we're known by what we weep about. That's why the book of Lamentations is written. Right? And the things that used to make us weep in the past, we don't weep about those things much anymore. And that's a sad commentary on all of us even your pastor. But the fact is, there's a, 
I think you can actually live in a spirit of revival as a believer continuously. It's according to how much you're repenting and seeking the forgiveness of the Lord and wanting to be restored. You know, if my people who are called by my name, that means ownership, right? Those people belong to the Lord. That would be the equivalent of New Testament followers. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. We know what that verse says. But the fact is, there's some principles from this text that must be in place in order for our God to respond and revive a nation like ours. There, there are some principles that need to govern your own life and the life of our church if we're going to see it. Now, this is going to be really simple. Can you all handle it? Nothing embellished, really straightforward. But here's the first thing that the psalmist does that we must do. If we're going to experience the reviving of the Lord, a turning back by God uh, to Him for His people, then first we're going to have to acknowledge the need. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But just like the psalmist, we've got to acknowledge the need that we're not what we are supposed to be and that we're not what we once were. And this is so true for our nation, correct? And as the psalmist rehearses the past mercies of the Lord, he begins to acknowledge that primary need of revival. It was an acknowledgement. And specifically in the text, if you'll notice it, seeking the Lord for restoration, turn us back, restore us, and revive us. The word revive means to take something that is dead and make it alive. It is what we need when we are away from the Lord. So again, resurrection or reviving, making us alive. And it implies that there was previous life that has waned away. And we're in need of being revived again. Now let's consider this not only individually and corporately as a church. But let's consider this in the great U.S. of A. that we live in. Uh, The word revive can mean to restore something to its former glory. I don't think any country had as pure as a beginning as the U.S. other than Israel. Let's just be honest. You think about our beginning, how we started. But consider with me that first that we're not the nation politically that we once were. (sighs) Where have the statesmen gone? I mean, folks, let's just be honest. We don't have any anymore. Have you ever wondered where they have gone? Where are the great political statesmen of the past? Think about this. In April 19th of 1775, uh, a group of British regulars encountered a group of American Minutemen. And the shot that was fired that day has become known as the... uh, I immediately thought about Barney Fife. (laughs) Y'all remember that? When he's trying to remember all this and Andy's telling the story and he's kind of thinking this is this kid's story, but Barney ends up being the one locked on, locked in, wanting to hear the rest of the story. But that shot heard around the world, and 14 and a half months later, in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a group of American citizens, colonists, gathered together and penned what we know of today as the Declaration of Independence. They signed the Declaration. They knew that they were not only putting their fortunes at risk, but they were putting their very lives at risk from signing that document. What's happened to that kind of statesman in our world or in the U.S.? It's kind of sad when you consider that. Ed Young said this not too long ago. If you study history, you'll discover that there are times when God gives a nation the worst leaders than it actually deserves. As we continue to study, we find that sometimes God gives a nation better leaders than it deserves. But he says, if you are careful, a careful student of history, you'll find out that most of the time God gives a nation the leaders they deserve. 
And if that's true, we're in trouble. Right? While I'm in the neighborhood, I might as well drop in. <sighs> Regarding politics and political agendas. You know, it, 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 it's dumbfounding to me that some people assert that their politics are or should be separate from their religion. Good Hebrew word for that, right? Y'all know what that Hebrew word is? Yes, you've learned that one well enough. That assertion is absolutely nonsense. I don't have to tell you that there are various groups in the United States of America. If, you could, if you've been unable to see this on the news and something's wrong with you, but they're going to vote for the candidate that supports their values or lack of values. They're going to align themselves with the candidate that supports their value and use values and usually that has to do with it's the economy stupid right that's usually going to be what it is it's got something to do with the economy and who's going to get the handouts who's going to get the entitlements we know that's the issue but somehow as believing bible believing christians we don't see the need to vote for the candidate that supports christian values that blows my mind and just think about it, folks. You do realize that evangelicals across the U.S. who claim to know Jesus as Lord are some of the very ones that have voted in some of the presidents we've had in the past that did not honor God in Christian values, period. And you wonder, what in the world are they thinking? Y'all listening to this? Folks, you can't separate who you are in any realm of life even if you think this is going to be advantageous for your pocketbook because you're going to stand before the king one day and you're going to give an account for that kind of stupidity I'm just going to tell you like it is anytime we would vote I would rather have my arm cut up to my elbow slam off than to vote for someone who believes in abortion you can't do that as a believer well you can but you're not supposed to I mean, folks, let's just be honest. To vote for someone who's going to murder or believe that dilation and extraction is okay, you fall and bump your head. Now think about that for a moment. No matter what the situation is, you can't separate who you are in Christ from whatever vote you're going to make or who you have. And I don't mind saying that. You said, preacher, you're dealing with political issues. Folks, you're a believer or you're not. And if you're a believer... You're a believer when you walk into that voting chamber or wherever you go to vote, whether it's this church or wherever else, you don't lose your Christianity when you walk in there. You belong to the Lord. Today in America, we live under a form of government that presently allows us to participate in deciding what our laws are. And, and, and in such a government, you are responsible as a child of God to vote according to the principles outlined in the Word of God. That is your responsibility. And God forbid that we would continue to elect people that will continue to purge our schools and our government of the mention of the name of Jesus Christ and to continue to sanction the killing of innocent babies still in their mother's womb. Folks, think about this. I don't care what your political affiliation is. You've crossed the line when you're for a candidate that is for abortion. You can say anything you want to say. I'm telling you like it is. I have to tell you this because I'm your pastor and I've got to be your leader and I'm going to speak the truth in love. Okay? So, listen to this. Think about this declaration. Again, we said it this morning, Acts 4, 19-20. They declared that their loyalty to God superseded 
took precedence over any loyalty that they would have to a, to a country that would tell them not to obey God. They broke from that, did they not? They had to obey God rather than man. Now, I could stay on this for a while, but we're not the country that we once were politically. The Democrats that my father-in-law voted for are not the same ones they're voting for today. And you know what? The Republicans that we had years ago are not the ones we're voting on today. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. Right's right and wrong's wrong. And that's not going to change whether you're a Democrat, a donkey, a frog, a cow. I don't care what you are. The fact of the matter is we, we have to be... We have to vote according to conviction drawn by the word of God, not political uh, performance or uh, whatever that may be. So we're not the country we once were politically. And simply because of that, we should be crying out for restoration from our God. Right? But what about the fact that we're not the nation that we once were morally? Just think about this. Morally speaking, the commandments that we based our law upon are not considered even relevant anymore. That's how far we've slid away from that. No matter how you look at it, the bottom line is our legislation has always been at least Judeo-Christian in its principles. And they were all derived in some way from the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not saying that all of them were Christians, because that's not the case. We've never been totally a Christian nation, right? Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He had what's called the Jeffersonian Bible. What he did is he ripped all the miracles out, including the resurrection. Yes, third president of the United States. That's how he believed. I doubt very seriously that Thomas Jefferson was a believer. If you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in the resurrection. Then you got a big problem. And you don't believe in the virgin birth, right? So, but the fact of the matter is, we still were founded upon Judeo-Christian principles derived from the Ten Commandments. And just think about the moral slide. I would not even say that we are... We are we are an immoral nation anymore because immorality means there are laws that we are breaking. I would say that we're an amoral country. We don't have any morals at all. Truly, that's where we are as a country. So we're not where we used to be morally. The Bible says that in the book of Judges that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the existentialist philosophy that epitomized that particular day. Every man just did what was right in his own eyes. You know what that means? There's an absence of authority. Right? That's what's going on. There's, there was no king in those days. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So the, the absence of authority. And then the awful apostasy. Doing what is right in your own eyes. And then it led to aggravated assault and assassination. Just think about some of the stories in the book of Judges. Uh, involving homosexuality. Involving... Uh, uh, decisions made outside of the will of God. That's what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. Some of you could not have imagined 30 years ago that we would be grappling today with the issue of same-sex marriage. I mean, I can't even fathom this, and I'm only 46, but I cannot fathom the fact when I was 10 to 16 years old that we would ever come to the place in our country where we would have to vote on whether or not marriage consists of one man and one woman for a lifetime. But that's exactly the case that we're in. I hope I'm painting the picture enough for you to understand 
that we're not the country we once were politically or morally. In the state of Louisiana, unless this has changed, you can check it out. If you're a pastor, you're considered a representative of the state. And as a representative of a state, you are required to marry anyone who comes to you. That's not going to happen on my calendar. We cannot do that. And that's, the, that's what we're living in in our country. We're not what we once were morally. How about spiritually? Now, again, there's never been a time when we've been exclusively Christian. But there was a day when Christian values were predominantly looked at as a good thing. But now, Christian values are looked at as bad things. And that is something... We used to, to be people who walked around in society and they would look at us and think... You know, they're a, a good addition to our society. Now, folks, again, something's happened to you if you think that the world really likes having you around nowadays. If you're, a, if you're a believer who lives with his faith on the line, this world does not like having you around. So we're not what we used to be. The oldest political document we have in our possession is called the Mayflower Compact. It contains this statement. Think about this. This land is founded for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Wow! Where, just think about where we've come from that kind of statement to where we are today. It was founded for the kingdom and for the advancement of Christianity. The original draft of the DOI, the Direct Declaration of Independence, evoked the name of, invoked the name of God six times. The final draft evoked the name of God four times. Every state constitution evokes the blessings and the name of God. And every president from George Washington all the way down to Barack Obama in their inaugural address has invoked the name of God and asked for his blessing upon our country. We've got a unique heritage in our country that no other country has had save Israel. No one has had the heritage that we've had. But we're fast becoming like the countries in Europe who affiliate only in name only to God, but not in actuality. And you may think this is an overstatement, but you live in the buckle on the Bible belt. Y'all do know that, don't you? Here in Missouri. And the fact of the matter is, did you know that even this morning, when you came to church, 70 to 80% of our population did not go to church anywhere? That wasn't the way it was years ago. Think about that for a moment. We're not where we once were spiritually. 63% among evangelicals, you know what that means, people who say they know Jesus and believe the Bible, are, are not sure. Over 43% do not believe that the Bible is inerrant. It's pretty sad, isn't it? 43% of those who profess to know the Lord. And another 40% say there's no real reason to share their faith with anyone. And that's where we're living today. We need a move of God in our day, don't we? We do need a move of God in our day. So for the political, spiritual, and moral ramifications of where we are as a country, we ought to be pleading with our God that he would restore us again. And you know, folks, this is something a preacher can't do. Only God can send revival. Only God can do it. So we've got to acknowledge the need. Does everybody agree with me in here tonight that we've got a need? Yes? We've got a serious need in our country. Well, here's the second thing. You need to believe in the possibility that our God can revive a nation, even like ours. Now, listen, I sympathize with the preachers in America 
who say all the time, our country is beyond hope. You, you do sympathize with them. And people say, preachers say all the time, we might as well just hunker down for judgment because judgment's on the way and there's no way the United States is ever going to change. And then they ask you to send them some money just to tell you that. That's the way your hair dudes are on TV. Well, I sympathize, but as a general rule, I disagree with them because when you study history and you study the Bible, it's often in the most hopeless times that God begins to work. And folks, Natalie and I talk about this all the time. Uh, movies or documentaries such as The Insanity of God. And if you hadn't read the book, you need to get your copy of it. Nick Ripkin's Insanity of God. When you read things like that, you're just reminded that no one's ever had it like we've had it in the U.S. as a Christian. There are people all over this world tonight that are suffering for Jesus. Seriously suffering. Not walking out in a rain shower to come to church kind of suffering. That's what Baptists in America think suffering is. Right? Coming to church in a rainstorm. We're talking about people who come to church under duress, who are dying for the cause of Christ, who witness on the streets and can die. I'm talking about people who are martyred for the faith. That's happening all over this world. And so, we may be in a good position. We're, we're, we're probably in the exact position God wants us to be in because now it's going to start costing us something to live our faith. And folks, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If a good dose of persecution is what we need in order to embolden us to share the gospel, then we need it. Folks, when, when it's all good, and, and, you know, I don't learn a whole lot in my life when all is well and I'm healthy and everything's going smooth. It, it takes a little bit of adversity and diversity in your life in order for you to pause long enough to acknowledge where your bread's buttered, right? Where you have to stop and pause and think about God working in our lives. So a good dose of persecution. And I'm honest about this. God, if that will help me to be on fire for you and have more gospel fervor. And think about the end. And think about your second coming. And think about people needing Jesus. Then bring it on. Right? I know we need to be careful about what we pray about. But the fact is, if it will make us more like Jesus and challenge us to get outside the walls of this church. Then we need persecution. God's always used persecution. He's used the preached word as an oracle of judgment and a catalyst for missions. Read the book of Acts. That's what he uses. So, think about this. Nineveh was a terrible place. You know, they skinned people alive. And Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because the Assyrians were ruthless people. They put people up on a pole and skin them alive. He didn't want to take the gospel to Nineveh. But God said... You're going to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, I'm not. And you all know the story. God had to get the prophet right. And so he put him in the belly of a great fish. Didn't take him long. Three days and three nights to repent. He got it right. It would have only taken me two seconds. <laughs> One touch of that slimy gullet would have been enough for me to get right with God. Amen. But once the Lord got him right, it was the darkest time in that kind of history. And God sends the prophet in there that even had a bad attitude and he preached the word and God brought salvation to thousands and thousands of people. You know, if God can do it at Nineveh, he can do it in the United States of America. We have to believe in the possibility that God can do it. Think about the Welsh revival. I don't know if you're a student of revivals, but if you've ever read about it, it was the darkest time spiritually, politically, and socially in that country. And the churches were closing their doors. The ministers had become corrupt. Politicians more so, you know, Malachi addresses that, right? Complacent preachers, corrupt politicians, compromising people. It deals with that. But 
it was in this kind of corruption that God began to work and pour His Spirit out in Wales. In 1905, in one Methodist church, and then another, and then another, a wave of surprising conversions took place. It is said that the Spirit of God was so thick in that place that when sailors would come back to the ports at the sea, they would come to the shore and they would fall under conviction, not even knowing what was going on. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? When a sailor repents, that's real powerful, right? The jails were emptied out. Police forces were let go. Prayer meetings sprang up in coal mines. Stores sold out of Bibles. Here's an interesting thing. They even had to retrain the mules that worked down in the coal mines because they didn't understand the coal miners' language anymore because they were always barking out their language that was so vile and vain. The mules didn't even know how to work in the mines anymore. You know, that's a sweeping move of God when you have to retrain a mule, don't you think? So that was going on. A sweeping move of God. I don't know if you believe that God can do that in America or not, but I'm telling you, God can do it. But it has to start in the church. It begins, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And in many reasons, I know God is sovereign, but in many ways we're at the point we're in in our country because we went so long with the spirit of the 21st century church of Laodicea, if you know what I'm speaking of. We were just not hot, not cold, just kind of lukewarm. You know, God says, you make me vomit. I mean, we think that's pretty good. I'm kind of lukewarm. God says, no, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness won't get it accomplished. But just think for a moment. Believe that God can do it. Believe in the power of God. Churches can be revived. In 19th century England, and the culture was reformed, what was the key to all of those things that happened? Well, the key is that there begins to be a national awakening that changed the whole horizon, but it began in the churches. It began with the people of God. Acknowledge the need, believe in the possibility, and here's the final one. We need to repent of all known sins. Amen? That's just not, as a nation, but that's as a church, and that's individually. When we repent, according to this text, God forgives. When we repent, God forgives. Now, folks, do you realize how awesome a gift of forgiveness of sins is? Sometimes we think, well, if I've got good health, I've got a good job. Or let me, let me back up and say, if God gives us good health, a happy and supportive family, a good job, praise from our employer, our friends, we think we're blessed. But if we lack one of these things, we think, man, God's forgotten me. And he doesn't care about me. But folks, God doesn't have to have perfect conditions or circumstances to send revival, but he does have to have one thing. And that's people who repent. And when you repent, God forgives. And folks... When we have all those blessings in our lives of good health and jobs and all these things, we think we're blessed by God. If we lose one of those things, we think, oh, God's holding out on us. Folks, the greatest blessing you can ever have is to be forgiven of your sins. As a matter of fact, there's not a half a hallelujah chance of heaven if he hadn't forgiven you of your sins. But our need, our greatest need today is to be forgiven of our sins. One thing is required, repentance. One thing is required for revival in our church at First Baptist Ozark, repentance. You repent and turn to God, He will forgive you. Now, most of us have the idea that if there's going to be a sweeping, if there's going to be any changes in America, 
There has to be sweeping changes in Hollywood or in Washington or whatever. But what the scripture teaches is that the changes and the repentance has to start with the people of God. Folks, the world can't have revival. Christians have revival. Only saved people can be revived. Those who are lost must be saved before they can ever be revived. So folks, think about this. When, we're talk- when Psalm 85 is written, this is written to believers who are called by God's name to turn back to Him. Again, 2 Chronicles 7.14. How many times have you heard this chapter or the reference? If my people who are called by my name. Who needs revival? The people called by His name. Who is that? That's me and you. If my people who are called by my name, who needs revival? Or under what conditions will they occur? I'm preaching you the text. Come on, folks. Right? If my people who are called by my name will, under what conditions? Humble themselves? Pray? Seek my face? Turn from your wicked ways? That's what, that's the conditions. And folks, this is written to believers. And then what will be the result? Yeah, I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. Does that sound kind of like Psalm 85, by the way? Yes, of course, that's what's going on, repenting. Now think about this for a moment. When's the last time you were broken over your own personal sin? When is the last time you wept over your own individual personal sins against God? Folks, there's no way our church will have revival corporately if we don't first have it individually. That's something to think about this week, isn't it? God, when is, God, when is the last time that I personally felt convicted so much of my own sin before a holy God that I wept over my sin. Well, that's something for us to think about, right? Humility. Brokenness before God is what Second Chronicles. And folks, that's brokenness over our sin. And then seek my face. As Americans, we're good at seeking God's hand. But rarely do we seek His face. And the seeking of the face, think about this. David prayed often, God, don't hide your face from me. When he hid his face, that was not a good thing. So we're to seek his face. Why? Because he's referencing the character of God. What we need most in our lives is to seek him. Think about this. If doctors in our country that know the Lord and lawyers and educators and business leaders and civic leaders and politicians would dare to bend the knee and admit how proud we are in our own stinking sin and repent to God, it'd be an incredible thing what God could do with this country. Now again... I don't know if there's going to be a sweeping move of God in the entire country. I don't know that. But I'm telling you there can be pockets of revival all over the U.S. when God's people repent and turn to God. That is a promise from the Word of God. How many of you have ever heard of Bertha Smith? Yeah. <clears throat> I figured you would be a, an elderly statesman or woman if you knew who they were, uh, who, who this was. But Bertha Smith was in the Shantou revivals, <clears throat> and she said that they were all accompanied by repentance. She said everything could be dead in the water and nothing happened and, so, and all of a sudden people would begin to repent and God would show up. She said husbands would confess their sins to their wives, wives to their husbands, pastors to their churches, churches would get on their knees confessing their sin. She said all of a sudden God would show up and revival would begin. We need to acknowledge the need that we all need personal revival. We've got to believe in the possibility, right? 
And we've got to repent of all known sin. In conclusion, what will be the result? Notice a couple of these things. God would grant us joy and love in our times. Could we stand some of that? That's what, start, that's what he starts talking about in 4 through 7. Restoration to his favor brings joy in the Lord. God would grant us peace and his presence in our land. Think about this. Just the Holy Spirit reigning over a land. God's shalom, this word is peace, but don't think about it just as, well, I feel at peace. It really means people who experience peace materially, physically, socially, and spiritually. It's the whole being of mankind and collectively as a community that we would experience this shalom given as a gift from God. Folks, that's what happens when God, when God leads his people to repent, when he points out our sins and we surrender in repentance. That what, that's what God does. What a privilege to belong to God, right? What a privilege to belong to him. He will dwell in our land. We, what better exchange could we have for our day with all the wickedness, and rampant evil, that God's personal presence would abide in our land. Well, that's what the psalm promises. Is this not enough for our churches to get on our knees? Ask God to restore us again. And then it says that not only will truth and grace come together, but they will embrace and kiss one another. You know, that did happen on the cross, by the way. The truth of who Christ is, justice. And when we are revived, the Bible says here that he lays down a path for us to walk in. We could stand some direction and guidance, right? Remember, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 34. Now, I think most of us are asking God to do a God-sized thing. You know, you may be the only one. Let me back up. I hope that we'll ask God to do a God-sized thing in our country. But if you're the only one that asks God to do a God-sized thing in our church, then you be that only one. Amen? You be the one that asks God to do a God-sized thing in our church, in Christian County, in the city of Ozark, in Christian County, in the United States of America. And even there's nothing wrong with you praying that God would do a God-sized thing in this world that we live in. Elmer Towns said it like this, If you want revival, it's no secret. All you have to do is confess every known sin, turn your life over to the Lord, and get out of the way. Hey, I believe that. And that's it. It begins with repentance. Incidentally tonight, that's also how salvation works. Did y'all know that? Can't be saved without acknowledging the need. Right? Then you've got to believe in the fact that God can save you. As a matter of fact, once you acknowledge the need, you'll know that he's the only one that can save you. And then how are you saved? You've got to repent of your sin. And you've got to turn to God. That's where it all begins, right? But that's what, all continue, that, that's what should continue in our lives. Uh, Christian life is not a one-time repentance and forgetting it. It's a whole life of repentance before the Lord. So maybe tonight you're here and you're lost. You don't know the Lord. You need to acknowledge the need. And that's simply this. Lord, in my sin, I deserve death. And in my sin, I will get judgment and even eternal death in hell, eternal punishment. My sin separates me from you, but God, you did something about that. The gospel proposition is that the Lord God of heaven would come down to this earth, take on human flesh, a come down kind of gospel, right? Where he took on human flesh, lived a life that you could never live, in full obedience, having never sinned, took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary, 
And therein paid the debt that you deserve to pay. For the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can tell you, it's more than a possibility. It's a fact that if you turn to Christ alone for salvation, seek his righteousness and ask his forgiveness. Seek only his righteousness to be given to your account. And you really mean it? Then it's more than a possibility. It's a fact that Jesus can save your soul. And then live a life of repentance before the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I know we need to hear this as a church. God, I need revival in my own life. Lord, we're presumptuous. We're proud. Lord, we get in a spiritual rut, which is nothing but a six-foot grave with both ends kicked out. Lord, we get in that, and we just stay in it and stay in it. And Lord, Father, I know that I need to be revived. Lord, we all stand in constant need of recommitments before you, uh, reconsideration of who we are in you, and Lord, uh, an evaluation of, Lord, our own spiritual walk before you. And God, I know for all of us, we could honestly say before you, we need to be revived and restored. And Lord, would you grant that in our church? Lord, let the sweeping move begin in our church nestled in Ozark, and Lord, may it spread across this world. Lord, you can do that. We know that you have the power to change lives and to save souls. Lord, you have the power to cleanse us from sin. You have the power, Lord, to make us new. And Father, I pray that it would begin with us. Lord, I'm reminded of the old song, what kind of church would my church be if every member were just like me? How many souls would be saved today if it all depended on what I said? Lord, what kind of church would this church be if every member was just like me? Or any one person in this church? Lord, what a reminder of what we're supposed to be, Lord, uh, as your people. Father, may revival begin with me. May it begin with the members of this church. And Father, may you restore our land, our country, the great country founded on principles that you were honored by. Father, I pray that you would restore us again. Lord, that you would send revival to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.